Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 10? We're going to be studying Jeremiah chapter 10. I'm going to read for us just the first seven verses of that chapter. Hear God's word. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For their customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of all the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what else can we pray except that there is indeed none like you? You are holy, you are true, you are right, you are good, you are unique in all your ways. You hold all power, you hold all wisdom, you hold all knowledge. There is nothing in heaven, there is nothing on earth, there is nothing under the earth that is like you. You alone are God. I pray this morning that as your spirit speaks this word to us, it would speak this above all things, that we would know you as the one true living and creating God. Do that in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I want you to think with me just a little bit this morning about the power of idols, the power that idols have. Now, an idol can be anything that we worship, right? It could be a figurine that's made out of wood or stone that represents a deity. That was true in Jeremiah's day. That's true in many places around the world today. It could be a physical object. But of course, an idol doesn't have to be that. It could be an idea or a desire or an ambition or a fear. It's something that we worship. And we all understand that we can make idols out of absolutely anything. We can make idols out of money and sex and power and security and youth and image and popularity. We can take these things, we can obsess about these things, and we can worship these things and they become idols to us. And these idols in our life, they have a lot of power. There is not a single hour of our waking day where these idols aren't asking something of us. Consciously or subconsciously, these idols are making demands. If we're honest with ourselves, there's not much else we could say about that. There's not much else, whether it's a title, a position, a relationship that we have, that we could honestly say we think about every single hour of every single day. But that's true of idols. They hold that kind of power. And with the power that they have, they make constant demands on our lives. They make constant demands. Sometimes the demands they make from hour to hour, they're very small demands. Look over here. Don't pay attention to that. Be stubborn in this direction. Worry about this over here. They can feel like very small demands, but sometimes they make massive demands of us hour to hour. 
I need you to overlook someone who is in need so that you can worship me. I want you to value me more than you value your marriage and your family. I want you to guard me as an idol at the expense of absolutely everything else in your life. The more we're honest about idols, the more we tease out the implications of these idols in our life, we find some very scary, very sobering places in our hearts that entertain these idols every hour of every day. Idols do have a ton of power, but the point of our passage is that the power that they hold over us is derivative power. Idols are only as powerful as the power we willingly give to those idols. An idol is actually only as strong as the human legs that carry it. If somebody stops carrying an idol, it can't go anywhere. It doesn't have power in and of itself. Now, in describing this, I hope you picked up on the sarcasm about idols in our passage, especially in verse 5. Look at this. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them. Now, I can't think of a more snarky, witty quip than to call an idol a scarecrow in a cucumber patch, right? That's funny. Jeremiah is using humor in this passage. What setting is less ominous than a cucumber patch? I mean, can you think of a place less scary? And what character could be less sinister than a flannel-shirted scarecrow stuffed with hay? I mean, not counting Batman the Animated Series. A scarecrow, it can't walk, it can't talk, it has to be restuffed from time to time, it has to be picked up and shuffled around the cucumber patch to new places. It's only scary when an animal thinks it's real, but the moment animals figure out it's not real, then that scarecrow has become completely and utterly worthless, right? It has no use anymore. Those big, scary, powerful idols we just talked about are called scarecrows in a cucumber patch. When that happens, when those words go forth, this is the prophetic ministry of unmasking idols. That's what's happening right here. The mask is being taken off these idols. Idols are kind of like the boogeyman. They're terrifying in the dark. They're terrifying when I'm being put to bed. But the moment dad turns on the light and goes and stands in the closet, they lose all of their power in the light with other people present. That's what God is doing in the prophet Jeremiah. He's speaking truth that throws the mask off of these idols and exposes them for what they really are and how little power they actually have. And actually, the Bible has a lot of fun doing it. When it exposes idols, it has fun doing it. It uses sarcasm and satire and wit to expose these idols. There's a bunch of examples in scripture of sarcasm that's either being directed at an idol, an inanimate object of an idol, or it's being directed at people who subscribe to idolatry. I just want to give us several examples to show the Bible can actually be kind of funny about speaking about idols and the perceived power that they hold in our life. 
Probably the most famous example is in 1 Kings 18. You've got this power struggle between Elijah the prophet and the prophets of Baal. And they're both asking their God respectively to show divine power. And the prophets of Baal, they've been crying out. They've been praying that the God of Baal would do something dramatic in their midst. And after it's been a few hours, Elijah, the respectable prophet, he actually starts making fun of the prophets of Baal, right? He says, I think y'all need to scream a little bit louder. I'm not exactly sure your God can hear you. I'm not sure he might be traveling or he might be sleeping or your God might actually be on the toilet. And that's why he can't hear you. That's funny. Elijah is making a joke. That's funny. Now, I don't know about the neighborhood you grew up in, but in my neighborhood, if you called somebody an idol and said he was taking a number two, that would be fighting material in my neighborhood. Isaiah chapter 44, the prophet Isaiah says, you got to explain something to me. When a person chops down a tree and they use one half to carve an idol and they use the other half to chop up and make firewood to cook a meal, how do they know which half is which? I mean, which half is the idol and which half is firewood? This doesn't make any sense to me at all. The prophet Isaiah, he's using sarcasm, he's using wit. You get to the ministry of Jesus, and he does this often, but it's not really to inanimate objects, the idols themselves. He directs his sarcasm to those who practice idolatry, and he's actually really funny and really witty when he does that. To a group of scribes and Pharisees who have the idol of self-righteousness, that's what they pride, that's what they worship. He says to them, when I see you guys, it's like you go home at the end of the day and you rigorously wash the outside of a cup and a bowl. You clean it, you make it spotless, but you forget to wash the inside. The inside is where you eat from and that's absolutely filthy. He's using sarcasm with the scribes and the Pharisees. At one point, Jesus, he calls King Herod in all his pomp and show of power a fox. He calls the most powerful man in his region a sly fox. The crowds, they come to Jesus and they say, you better watch out because word on the street is Herod, he wants to kill you. And Jesus says, go tell that fox I'm not done yet. Tell him I'm going to do my ministry in Jerusalem. I'm going to leave and do some more ministry. And then I'm going to hustle back to Jerusalem because I know Jerusalem is the city that the Israelites like to kill their prophets. And I want to be here in time for them to do that. That's heavy sarcasm. I don't know if anybody took that full message to King Herod. The Apostle Paul When he deals with idolaters, those who are making trouble in the church, their idol is actually the Old Testament law, that the Old Testament law needs to be added to the gospel to make a person fully saved. And so they're telling everybody in the church that they also need to be circumcised so that they can experience salvation. Paul says, I wish those people who are making trouble would just go and circumcise themselves again. (laughs) That's funny. That's wit, that's sarcasm, that's breaking down idolatry. But my personal favorite dismissal of perceived power is in 1 Kings 20. I've been looking my entire life for a place to use this in real life. But it's between Ahab and the idolatrous king of Syria. The king of Syria, he comes against Ahab and he says, he sends him a message and he says, we're going to annihilate Israel. Israel is going to be completely and totally gone. And Ahab writes a little note and sends it back to him and it says this, let not him who straps on his armor boast like him who takes it off. 
In other words, anybody can talk when you're strapping on your armor before battle, right? Because everybody on both sides of the battle, they're doing that. They're putting on armor. They can talk a big game. I don't care about the person talking, strapping on their armor. What I care to hear is the man at the end of the day who's still standing to take off his own armor. That guy won the battle. That's the guy who can be talking a big game. Where idols loom large and scary and feel like the most powerful thing filling our horizon, they need to be knocked down a notch and prophetic wit can help. Making fun of idols, making light of idols, calling them for what they are, that can actually help in our battle with idolatry. Just to use a very silly example from my marriage, Um, my wife and I, we can be really short with each other, right? As you guys have experienced, we can argue about really silly and stupid things that we don't need to argue about. We've been married a decent amount of time. We're going to celebrate 13 years tomorrow. And after 13 years of marriage, you have been around the block with the idols that war against your marriage. They're very familiar to us. We know about the idols of self and pride, the idols of entitlement, the idols about always having to be the person who is right. And so Every once in a while, when we're in the right frame of mind, we have fun exposing those idols as they creep up in our marriage. One of the ways we do this is Julie, when she knows she has to share something that's going to be contentious, she starts it very dramatically. She comes in the the house and she says, David, I got to tell you something that is going to make you absolutely furious. I mean, it's going to make you go bananas. Well, I mean, after somebody says that, what can you possibly do? So that's my cue to guess something funny, right? Let me guess, you spent money. Or let me guess, you invited your extended family over for the day. What, what could you possibly have done that's going to make me so angry? So that by the time Julie gets around to say, I backed the minivan into a sign, it's like the idols have been diffused. How could I possibly be angry about that? Signs, they pop out of nowhere. You just can't avoid those things, right? <clears throat> Now, the point is not that you have to be witty or funny to expose idolatry. That's Jeremiah's tactic here. That's what he's using here. The point is there is power in talking about idols. There is power in taking what is in the dark, what hides in the shadow of our heart and putting it out in a well-lit room in front of a friend and beginning to ask hard questions about our idols. There's a ton of power in that. Asking, why does this thing hold such sway in my life? Asking, what are the times and the places and the circumstances where this idol consistently rears its head? What am I afraid of? What am I enslaved to? What do I really want? That kind of talk is going to require hearing from the word of God, hearing from the friends that God has placed in our life, this prophetic role of unmasking idols. Colossians 1.15 reminds us that Jesus on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. Somebody in our midst, one of our friends in our midst, has to stand up at some point and say, Jesus has triumphed over principalities and powers, and they have been put to open shame. 
Somebody has to reach across the table and grab us by the collar and say the only power your idol has is the power you keep giving it every single day. Somebody has got to grab us and say, I know the idol that consumes you. I know the idol that you fear. I know the idol that you most desire that seems like the largest thing on your horizon from where I'm sitting. That thing looks like nothing but a scarecrow in a cucumber patch. God, give us friends who can speak this kind of truth and unmask these kinds of idols. We spent a lot of time talking about idolatry. Maybe we've spent too much time talking about idolatry. Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane once famously said, for every look you take at yourself, you should be taking 10 looks at Christ. And I think the same could be true about idols, right? For every time we look and glance at an idol that so easily entangles us, we ought to take 10 looks to the one and true God. If you read chapter 10, you realize that there's this contrast happening back and forth between idols and God, idols and God. You take one look at idols who are quiet and immobile and impotent creations, and then you take 10 looks at God in this passage in places like verse 13, which says, When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. Idols can't speak, but the word of God, it cannot be silenced. It can be this calm wellspring of water when we need a drink from it, but in a moment's notice, it can turn into a torrent pretty quick and move things out of our way. The passage says he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. We move from this loud tumult of waters all the way to mist, wisps of water that are held by God. An idol knows nothing, but God knows when a sparrow falls, and he knows when the smallest wisp of mist rises from the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth wind from his storehouses. An idol can't move, but God is movement. All creation, it dances under his sovereign hand. It's like he's got a bag of lightning bolts and a barn house of wind, and he can disperse those things as he pleases. He animates absolutely everything in this world we can see and everything in this world that we cannot see. Truly, verse 6, there is none like you, O Lord. There is absolutely none like you. You know when you're watching an episode of Planet Earth and you see a baby caribou that has kind of wandered too far from the herd? You know that experience? You just, the thing is adorable, but it's not going to end well. He's nibbling very cutely. And all of a sudden, the orchestra music gets really intense. And then this pack of wolves shows up over the horizon. And it's, it's all over at that point, right? They chase him. He runs. He stumbles. The wolves catch him. They eat him. They make a meal out of the calf. It's really sad and disheartening to watch. That's essentially what you've got in Jeremiah chapter 10. The camera, it pans across a cucumber patch. And you've got this handmade, 
overstuffed scarecrow who's been stuck a little too far from the other scarecrows. He can't move, he can't speak, he can't run away. And the dramatic music begins. And God appears on the horizon and you hear verses 10 and 11. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to him, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Let's pray together. Lord, there is none like you. There is no one like you. There is no thing like you. There is nothing to which you can be compared. I pray that for every single look we take to our idol, which feels so large and so consuming to us, we would take 10 looks to the one, the true, the living God who stands over all, that you will break the power of idols in our lives, that you will unmask them by the ministry of our friends, that you will free us to walk and to worship the one true living God. Do this in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.